This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone, we are back with another episode of Empire Weekly Roundup. It's Friday morning. We got Santiago. He's out in Barcelona coming at you from the Avalanche Conference. Uh, Santi, my man, happy Friday. Happy Friday, everyone. How's it going? Good to be here. <laughs> You're so formal today. Got the buttoned up shirt. You've got the like, uh, I know, the right? Pullover. I, I, I do. I'm wearing, I'm wearing my, I'm wearing my sweat, my, my favorite sweater, it's a, you know, custom dog here. I love dogs. Uh, I like sweaters, but yeah, I'm, I'm more formal than most people at this conference. But, you know, every once in a while, you know, DJ needs to wear formal skin. I love that, man. All right. We're going to be talking. I want to hear from you just like how's the Avalanche Conference. Uh, mm-hmm. We want to talk about wallet security today, actually. Uh, decently um, yeah. interesting hack with Arthur. Um, want to talk about Bitcoin being on track to be a reserve currency for stable coins and DeFi, a whole bunch of good stuff, um, but actually a bunch of updates really quickly. Um, one is permissionless. We just locked in a big new speaker from permissionless. His name is Vlad. He is the CEO of Robinhood. Yes. CEO of Robinhood, co-founder of Robinhood is going to be speaking at permissionless. We also locked in Do Kwon. Uh, candidly, I forget if I already updated, updated folks on Do Kwon, but we got Do Kwon coming. We got the CEO of Robinhood coming. We just announced today that we're going to be donating up to $600,000 of profit to the event. Um, so right now we've donated $100,000 uh, in partnership with The Giving Block. We're going to be donating up to 600000 to Girls Who Code, which is helping. Uh, well, you guys can read the announcement. Uh, go, go search on Twitter, but really excited uh, to be giving back a lot to the community here. Uh, and then the last thing is we locked in a couple of big uh, names for the podcast. So if you're not already subscribed, we've got Do Kwan recording an episode with Do Kwan of Terra next week. If you guys have thoughts on what you want us to ask dough drop it in the discord channel so all right and obviously if you missed it last thing to call out is permies we got these cute little nfts dropping 555 unique nfts um the pre-lit the pre-sale is uh may 29th and the public sale is may 31st to get in the pre-sale you have to be on the allow list to get on the allow list you have to either be in the discord uh, or subscribe to the newsletter. So if you and if you're already a permissionless ticket holder, then you can get on the allow list. So if you if you guys have questions about that, just jump in the Discord, ask the questions. So, all right, Santi, got the updates out of the way. Mm-hmm. Avalanche, what's going on? How's Av- Avalanche? What are the big takeaways? Can, walk me through it. Yeah, the conference is fairly well uh, organized and structured. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of teams here. Um, many of which are not uniquely building an avalanche because, you know, for context, uh, it's an EVM compatible chain. And so it allows a lot of teams that have been deploying and built on Ethereum to port over. So you see a lot of the same kind of groups that congregate and go to Ethereum based conferences come in avalanche. Uh, but there's a lot of excitement in the room. Um, there's a lot of discussions around DeFi. That's a panel that I was on and, uh, it's a really nice venue outside of Barcelona, Fairly small conference-ish, uh, certainly not to the scale that you saw um, uh, the Solana Breakpoint Conference in Lisbon is by far the most well-structured, organized crypto conference for an L1 other than consensus. Um, but, you know, Solana was just – the Breakpoint Conference is just at a whole other level, which tells you a little bit about I, – I, I joke that conferences offer a glimpse into how – a protocol and tells you a lot about the particular L1. So for instance, you know, Avalanche is kind of a little bit chaotic, a little bit grassroots. It's probably, I think their first event really, really nicely put kind of the crowd is, you know, well-known and a lot of usual suspects are there, uh, but it feels kind of homey. Um, Breakboy conference was a massive conference. I think you were there, uh, Jason, and it's, Tells you everything, you know, a centralized organization creating a conference, like well-oiled machine. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, Solana is a little bit more centralized. Uh, and then DevCon, which is the last one that happened, was in Osaka. And I was there. And just for context, this was in a, in a really nice venue, great city of Osaka. 
there were two elevators to get to the to every single kind of like side speaking event for the entire conference. And so it tells you everything you need to know about Ethereum, which is bottlenecks <laughs> and scalability problems. Like, are you serious? Two two elevators, congestion, right? And so I joke that conferences and the way they're organized tell you a little bit about like the management of these protocols. Um, but that's that's a recap. My panel was on DeFi and what really um, the, the prompt was, how are we going to get to a trillion dollars if we're at 200 today? What's the path towards getting there? We talked a, a little bit about risk and there was a lively discussion amongst the panel whether participants within crypto understood the risk and if yields were sustainable. Um, and it was a good discussion. Nice. Nice. Keep in mind also, yeah, I was at I was in in Lisbon at the Solana conference at Breakpoint. That was also like the tippy top of the market. So I think anybody could have hosted a conference at that time and it would have been a blowout event. I remember I was at the uh, at the Multicoin event. And I'm sitting next to this like big whale and he looks at me and he goes, I'm selling all my Solana tomorrow morning. He goes, this is the top. This is the toppy top. So uh, I think, I mean, honestly, conferences are very dependent on and just like engagement in crypto is very dependent on where we're at in the market cycle. I, w- I have a question for you in terms of um, in terms of the Avalanche conference. I, you remember at Lisbon, uh, there were all these founders kind of lined up and the VCs were just throwing money at these different founders. And a lot of the founders were like 22 years old and they, everybody was raising mm-hmm. it at Breakpoint. Does it, do you still have the same, mm-hmm. a, like, is there a similar new companies launching type of vibe at a- Avalanche? Are the founders all these like 22 year olds like they were for Solana? Are the VCs throwing mm-hmm. money at them like they were at, at Breakpoint? What's the kind of new company so scene much. look like? De- not so much. De- definitely not so much. Uh, okay. Not so much at all. I think it's more... Avalanche is similar to a subset of the Solana. I, I would say that the there's fewer companies building. Founders are a little bit older, and mind you, these are I'm, I'm extrapolating here from a few data points that I saw, but tends to skew financial folks. So people that you know are fairly well versed in finance and understand it, and I think are coming to Avalanche to build a lot of DeFi applications. Where in Solana, I think you are seeing. Perhaps uh, definitely a lot of concentration in DeFi, but also a lot of social applications, a little bit more expressive, kind of more generalized. Uh, but I tend to, at least my interactions with uh, projects building on Avalanche tend to skew more towards DeFi. Any any other big takeaways from the Avalanche conference? No, no, not maybe next. Uh, I mean, I'm still going to be here today. I'm going to a few events tonight and then, um, you know, maybe some more to report on next week. But for now, well, well, you know, nice, nice venue, nice conference, a lot of a lot of excitement in the room. Uh, but still cautious optimism, I would say. Nice, nice. Um, Not as euphoric as you saw in Breakpoint. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into some of the content here. We, t- we spoke a couple of weeks ago about wallet security. Uh, this week, um, I felt really bad for him. Arthur Chong, one of the most well-respected DeFi investors. Uh, he went from, you know, he's one of the earliest users and investors. I think it's in Synthetics, maybe? Uh, I actually don't fully know the backstory of Arthur, but Synthetics, Ave, Kyber now runs one of the largest DeFi-focused funds in Asia uh, called Defiance. Um, I think uh, he's like managing, yep, I don't know how much money yeah, they have at the fund, but it's like a billion or, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> high level on this art. So basically Arthur got hacked. A hacker stole $1.7 million worth of NFTs from Arthur. Um, and this was, this was kind of nuts to me because Arthur is one of the most well-respected, like DeFi experts, biggest, one of the biggest DeFi investors out there. And if someone like Arthur can get hacked, right? The hacker basically spent a, sent a spear phishing email to him. They stole 17 Azukis, five Clonexes, 33 second shelves, two Hedgies, took some Lido, wrapped ETH, looks rare, uh, tokens, DYDX, uh, and basically took, yeah, about- like 1.7 million, right? Yeah, 585 ETH, 1.7 million. Um, mm-hmm. I actually have a screenshot. I'll see if I can share this here. No, I can't share it. Um, of the email. But if you guys go mm-hmm. to Arthur's, I can. we'll put the link in the show notes of yeah. this spear phishing attack. But Santi, what yeah. are your what just what are your high level thoughts on on this attack? Unfortunate, obviously. The 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 things that I'll highlight is one, it was uh, two hot wallets that were compromised, and basically what this what this uh, pretty sophisticated social engineering attack, spear phishing attack, does is it pretended to be an email from Jihan, uh, a kinetic, uh, and you open kind of a a PDF of sorts, and it 
deploys a script that uh, again compromises your MetaMask client, and when you go and sign a transaction, I think it just kind of drains your wallet. Um, of course, the the hot wallet. I guess the the takeaways here are minimize your hot wallet exposure and assets that you hold in hot wallets. I mean, you shouldn't be holding more than a couple thousand dollars in hot wallets. I know it's convenient, but it's you cannot compromise convenience for security in this space. Not where we are in this kind of early adoption phase. There's still a lot of risks, and when you're putting expensive profile pictures that are NFTs, uh, people can very quickly you know, you're a target. And so it's not a trivial amount of money. It's unfortunate. Don't use hot wallets. If you're going to use a hot wallet, use it only to very quickly go in, deploy and send it back to a cold hardware, like a cold storage wallet uh, and minimize any interaction, any transaction signing from that vault. In fact, you kind of don't want to ever sign with a cold wallet. If you're going to use a hot wallet, use it only for quick interactions that's my advice and also just don't click on links the email there you could have seen it's at underscore gmail.com of course arthur admittedly i don't want to kind of berate this right but he said look i was sloppy uh humans are curious species you're gonna just assume that you are going to be clicking on stuff my advice here would be have two sets of computers one which you never open email, you never click on links. If you want to use an iPad to to click on links and I'll do all this stuff, fine. But don't, you know, kind of, I like to think of, you know, I love Harry Potter. Use the Horcrux model. The Horcrux is Voldemort kind of shredded, sharded his soul into, I think, seven Horcruxes. Um, use the same model in crypto. Use different computers for whatever you're going to do in your social life and click on links if you're going to use a crypto dedicated computer where you literally just minimize all kinds of interactions and limit the surface area and don't use hot wallets, um, you know, of course, important to note, the attack vector would have still existed if you used a hardware wallet. So it's important to understand what you're signing always. Uh, a hardware wallet, the seed phrases were not compromised. So what it, the attack would have looked like if you're if you connect a ledger or treasure, for instance, um, you would have the MetaMask extension that was compromised would have fabricated a fake transaction that you that you would have signed if you were careless at that point and signed. This happened to Hugh at Nexus Mutual way back, if you remember. Then you would have sent all your assets, or you would have signed, and it would have compromised the wallet, um, depending on the sig on what you're signing. But it's more difficult. Um, Whereas if you have a hot wallet, it just gets compromised more easily. So again, I'm not a security expert, but I am always increasingly paranoid and treat security. Unfortunately, a lot of people get started in this space with a few, with a, you know, not so much in terms of assets, but that can grow very quickly. And for instance, a lot of ape holders, board ape holders, you know, if you have 10 board apes, you pray and you minted them initially, it wasn't a lot of money now, a lot. So increase your security standards and protocol in line with however much value you're you're securing. And always assume you have a target on your back. Everyone right. is a target. Uh, so anyways, yeah. a lot of a lot of common sense here that I'm sure folks know, but I'll just drop it here forever. How, how did yeah, I mean have you have you ever been hacked, Santi? Let me just start there. Uh one wallet way back in the day back in the day so mm -hmm. my so i remember back in 20 yeah 2016 i think or maybe 2017 setting up like all the setting up all my first ledgers or yeah knock on wood setting up the ledgers and i was like all right i've got my cold storage i'm good to go and i was like eventually uh security in this space will get will will improve and and this won't happen to anyone mm -hmm. um but but right now is like 2016 2017 you've got to you've got to actually set everything up well now here we are six five years later and a lot of these big exploits and big risks still exist. And so my question to you becomes, is this just how what the industry is going to look like forever? Where we say, okay, the the rewards of DeFi, everything's really seamless. It's it's instantaneous, all this kind of permissionless building that happens. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. That's the upside. Mm -hmm. But you know what? The downside is that it's a little more uh, risky to use. Is this just like how the industry looks or what? how, how, how do we improve this? 
Oh, well, this was a big part of the discussion of the panel yesterday. I think, I think it looks today seamless in, in many ways, but it's, it's also very risky um, because a lot of users don't appreciate the surface area that they're covering. Um, and you, you develop habits, you know, I think that there's sort of like a J curve here of security standards, which is initially you might be somewhat paranoid because, you know, hear it from friends, be like, just be very careful, use a ledger, set up a MetaMask, here's the link. So you start and you're like vigilant and then you become complacent. So it's like sort of like this J curve. And that's the worst because your assets probably grow, you have decent amount of money and that's where you get hacked. Uh, because you start getting more familiar with these protocols and you start getting into the habit of signing transactions and you know, you get into the swing of things. Whereas perhaps uninitiated users kind of limit their interactions with protocols. And so that's the, the more kind of area where you have to be very careful. Now, of course, Arthur is a very experienced guy. I know him quite well. And even people like him can get hacked. So I think the, the industry, there are increasing solutions like Argent, for instance, has social recovery uh, Gnosis Safe um, is a pretty kind of very good solution that anyone can use. Um, and so I guess the short of it is I think the industry will continue to to have the surface area because there's a lot of innovation and things are breaking, right? And 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 you're your own bank and you have your own keys. And so if you're willing to venture into this land, you know, it's important to segregate assets because you kind of just assume that there's kind of a joke that I have, which is if you've been out long and if you've been long enough in crypto, you've probably been hacked once. Um, and so just minimize the, the, the damage that that can be done and by segregating, having multiple wallets. Uh, so the nice thing is though, a lot of users, again, like if you, if I put on my pragmatic hat on, then the question really becomes, and I'm curious to get your opinion is, should most users be venturing into this permissionless land and like using decentralized applications or are they better off using centralized solutions? Because yeah, there's, there are risks to both, but the question is, you know, at least you're, you're offloading security best practices to a custodian or an exchange that are using a custodian. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts because a lot of people, diehards would say, never, no, like, absolutely not. You should, you should have your own, you should not your keys, not your crypto. I do wonder at times, well, maybe for you, but don't, maybe not for everyone, you know, and not mainstream users. So I'm curious yeah. how, what you think. I mean, I mean, I would just say that I think it's important to remember though, that there are a lot of still risks with the centralized solutions. Um, and I think that they're working on fixing that, but it all, it comes back to the fact that crypto is a bearer asset, right? If, if I take, if I'm at home, I have 10 bucks sitting on the couch, you come over, you take the 10 bucks from me and you leave with it. You just stole 10 bucks from me. Uh, but there's no one I can call, right? There's no, there's no, there's no, I can't call the U S government and the, and crypto works in the exact same way, right? Where if I have, uh, you know, money at Gemini, and I have a hundred bucks at, at Gemini. Someone breaks into my account. Maybe I don't have two two factor authentication on. Someone takes the 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 money out of Gemini. There's no going back, right? You can't call the the head of Ethereum and like rescind that money. Unlike in the way that you could do it if money got taken out of my Bank of America account or Wells Fargo or something mm -hmm. like that. So I think there are still risks with centralized companies. I think mm -hmm. that it comes down to uh, I, I I'm still. Not sure why we don't have cheaper insurance for crypto. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I'm I'm sure that someone with a bigger brain than me is listening to this podcast saying, all right, well, it's obvious why we don't have insurance. Um, but that just seems like something yeah, that should I'll tell happen. you why. Yeah. Because every person that I've talked to from Lloyd's to Aon, like insurance carriers, one, they either don't understand this industry, don't want to dwell, like spend time and energy on it because it has regulatory hair on it. Or... It's not very scalable, meaning there's not enough capacity, um, for instance, to underwrite, especially for the riskier protocols. You know, you can go out there and buy insurance for more battle-tested battle protocols like Aave and Compound, not so much for, and Yearn, not so much for perhaps the riskier, less, less lind, protocols with less Lindy. And that's kind of like the, the conundrum, right? Um, 
still though, you know, even last year there were, there, there have been hacks uh, of Compound, for instance, where there's an Oracle failure, if you will, just call it a failure of a protocol. Um, and the surprising thing is that, you know, no one really kind of buys insurance. Yeah. Um, and and it goes back to your initial observation, which is, yeah, you're making good yield and returns, and so you're farther out on the risk spectrum. And I think naturally, crypto users a big subset of sophisticated participants just accept that risk. And as I always say, you know, is if you don't understand where the yield is coming from, you're the yield. And there's a reason why yields are high and there is still a big risk in in interacting in this industry. Um, and so I think the, the solution for insurance probably is one where, and I've had this idea for a while. So anyone listening out there, I pitched it actually to a few sophisticated folks in the insurance space, which is in insurance, you want to have a diversified portfolio. There is a lot of correlation risk in DeFi, meaning think about how many protocols Yearn plugs into. And the idea of composability is fascinating, but also problematic for insurance because you're only as strong as your weakest link. So if one piece of the Lego equation breaks, then a lot of things can break with it. And so what needs to happen is you need to have a traditional insurance carrier that has a diversified portfolio across property and casualty, uh, you know, life insurance, health insurance, whatever, um, to then start slowly underwriting a small percent of the other portfolio uh, with crypto products um, that insure on, among the more problematic things like key management and what happened to Arthur, for instance, right? And I think yeah. there is a lot of appetite in the market to actually buy this insurance because if you're making it, just think about insurance as a baked in kind of net yield, right? If you're making 8%, 10%, 15%, 30% uh, on the, on, on, you know, yield farming or whatever, then what's a, a 5% uh, insurance cost on that? It's not much, right? Because you just net it out and say 25%, you know, that's still a fantastic return insured. I mean, that's fantastic, right? So I think um, I think it needs to come from a centralized player. I think it will at some point. Uh, I think the market's going to just keep growing and it's just going to attract people, especially with more regulatory clarity. So you almost want to do that, right? And so, heck, I might just, fuck it, I might just do it myself uh, because I've been <laughs> tired of pitching it to uh, insurance companies. Um, and it doesn't take much. You go out and buy a Bermuda company that has a $100 million portfolio. You start underwriting 20, 30 million of cover. You know, that's that's pretty decent. Um, and, and so that's how I, I generally think of it. It is challenging for a crypto native insurance protocol because there is so much correlation. There is so much constant, like you need to diversify the risk and it's hard because everything in DeFi is so connected. So, so that's, uh, it's an area that I talk to a lot. It's an area that I'm investing in heavily. It's probably my number one priority right now because without proper insurance, none of this is going to work. Right. Yeah, I mean, it feels like we're missing two things. One is like a centralized insurance, like uh, centralized insurance for crypto, almost like a lemonade mm -hmm. for crypto holdings. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that that seems like one option. The other option is uh, Nexus Mutual, um, right? Ne Nexus Mutual is like a, my understanding is like a people powered insurance, right? It mm -hmm. covers you against uh, like smart contract failure, exchange hacks, things like that. Mm -hmm. But there have been some issues with scaling that business. And I think that there just yeah. need to be more providers uh, who come to the table. Yeah. So yeah, the the other observation I'll make is, and I've, I've actually pitched this to folks like Stani to say insurance in crypto, some of it doesn't get bought. You need to sell insurance at the point of sale, meaning when you deposit is when you feel risk. Once you deposit, game over. You didn't buy insurance then, you're not gonna buy it ever. It's like flood insurance, right? When you buy a home in Florida, the broker, the notary, that I was telling you, hey, by the way, there are hurricanes in this part of the neck of the woods. You should probably go out and buy flood insurance, hurricane yeah. insurance. And you're going to do it at the point of sale. And when you buy a car, it is mandated that in order for you to drive that car, you need to have. The dealer will not let you drive out unless you buy um, car insurance. And in a similar way, you, you, you can do that, right? If you're Ave, why wouldn't you wrap Nexus cover when you deposit or when you deposit in a urine vault. And you almost, it's its opt out, not opt in, right? Uh, from a behavioral economic standpoint, like you can opt out of it, but opt in rates, like, it's just like everyone is protected by default. 
and you just see the yield, the APY, with this insurance cover cost baked in. And so it's just sort of like there's simple things and nudges that we can do as an industry to to protect users. Candidly, I'm actually un- disappointed that a DeFi protocol hasn't come out and say, we're just going to do this by default. You can use Risk Harbor, you can use Nexus, you can use, uh, you know, Insurace, a bunch of other, a bunch of protocols other, that have capacity. And we haven't even bumped into that. So just, you know, God damn it. I mean, sometimes things are just, why? Yeah, but you're over, you yeah, yeah, like, but you're over, you're over Do I make sense here? No, yeah, I mean, yes. I, I actually no, not no, oversimplifying. You could wrap an insurance contract with Nexus when you deposit an Aave. Why can't you do yeah. that today? Well, because the the pricing of it all comes down to how do you price, how do you uh, underwrite something, and how do you price the risk, right? So is that? I mean, maybe I'm just wrong, but risk. It's a market driven market. Like, no, no, that, no, no, no. Yeah. It's a function of supply and demand, right? I mean, there is there is okay another issue, right? Nexus is just kind of suboptimized in the sense of like cover the pricing of cover is highly inefficient. For a while, it's like the biggest ARB. It's like the cheapest thing. That, it's not very expensive. Um, now, of course, the issue with Nexus is you have to KYC and, you know, certain subset of participants don't want to do that. Fine. Okay. I get it. Uh, it's limited to certain jurisdictions. Fine. Okay. I get it. That's Nexus. There are other solutions out there in the market. Increasingly, and I'm excited about Risk Harbor, um, and there will be others, right? Yeah. And I mean, so, Terra kind of did this. Terra kind of did this actually. With Risk uh, Harbor. With Risk Harbor. Well, they, um, exactly. Terra had Ozone Protocol, um, which, which was like they the algorithmic asset. And then. That's yeah, right. and Risk Harbor took over, right? I think maybe Absolutely. six months ago or something. Yeah. So if in six months' time we don't see protocols like Anchor, Atera use Risk Harbor by default, then I'm going to be really pissed. <laughs> Let's get into Terra, Santi. Let's pivot a little okay. bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you're building insurance, go talk to Santi. He'll find Please company. do. Yes. Terra is buying a bunch of Bitcoin. Is the story right now? Terra is building BTC reserves. Um, Doe hinted at a uh, $10 billion uh, BTC reserve, uh, BTC buy to basically become the reserves for UST. Um, mm-hmm. This is very interesting um, because it, it the the thought that comes into my head is like, is Bitcoin on track to become a reserve currency for stable coins and DeFi, right? So what originally happened when Michael Saylor and then Tesla bought Bitcoin is like, okay, corporates are moving their balance sheets onto Bitcoin. Then it happened with the first nation state with El Salvador. And now what's happening is DeFi protocols or, or DeFi uh, L1s, excuse me, not DeFi, just L1s are starting to integrate with the Bitcoin network. So you have Terra buying Bitcoin mm-hmm. to become a reserve asset for UST, their stablecoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have Avalanche announced, I think yesterday, bridge. that the Avalanche bridge is expanding support for the Bitcoin network. Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of ties in with Arthur Hayes. I don't, I don't know if you have been reading Arthur Hayes recently, favorite writer mm-hmm. out there currently. Yeah, by far. Um, but he wrote this piece that countries with account surpluses are going to move from buying t- from T-bills to actually Bitcoin due to the risk of seizure. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think his kind of expansion on this was that uh, as you... Like some, if you look at someone like China, right? They have over a trillion dollars in US in USD reserves currently. If you're China and you're seeing what the what the US just did with Russian reserves, freezing like three hundred billion dollars of Russian res, of uh, of mm-hmm. reserves, well, you're looking at your trillion dollars in USD, and you're saying, oh shit, can the US just freeze that? What if I move my reserves into an asset such as Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there are two different conversations to have here. One is is Bitcoin. It's interesting to see these L1s integrating with the Bitcoin network. The other is, is Bitcoin on track to become a reserve currency? And this is the question I'd pose to you right now. Is Bitcoin on track to become a reserve currency for other stable coins and DeFi and other L1s? Yes. I spoke with the Sovereign team yesterday. I'm excited about what they're building. I've been very critical of the Bitcoin community for a while and even back in 2014, the reason why I became so interested in Ethereum, uh, because I think there has been this rigidity and uh, unwillingness to innovate. And Sovereign comes in and says, use to build smart contract functionality on top of Bitcoin. And it's super exciting. Um, and I think 
think about the amount of Bitcoin that hasn't interacted in DeFi, hasn't bridged over because you have to wrap it, you have to compromise on security, uh, you have to use a bridge and yeah, okay, you can earn yield on your wrapped Bitcoin, but you know, you're either using a centralized solution like like Bitco through through wrapped Bitcoin um, and it's not ideal or a synthetic kind of version uh, like synthetics protocol. So again, I think that's not to say a lot of Bitcoin holders don't want to interact in this decentralized finance economy. Um, but I think, uh, so one, I think there's, it's good to see that there is going to be more functionality for Bitcoin, at least for, for native holders, but also as it relates to nation states, absolutely. I mean, I think um, the experiment, the, what is happening with Russia is a, is a, you know, if, if you're a state like that has issues with the U.S. or may have, I don't want to like become too politicized. I do think that this idea of holding a non like a non-sovereign store of value is super fascinating. Um, I thought I thought that when El Salvador jumped into the Bitcoin camp as a legal tender and a reserve asset, it sort of like catalyzed the start of a geopolitical phase of of crypto. Um, which is, you know, I've had conversations with central banks uh, in Mexico, for instance, and I asked them, hey, listen, okay, you have treasuries, fine. Why not put like 0.1% of your balance sheet on something like Bitcoin? The argument for an institution is no different than a central bank. Now, of course, like if you're in Latin America, for instance, and you and I have talked about, I think your observation was fantastic in one of the earlier episodes, and I keep going, coming back to this example of standards. We have the metric system. We have the imperial system. We have a governing body that sets, you know, there's they're kind of standard like kilometers and miles and, and Celsius and Kelvin and Fahrenheit. And in many ways, like money is still kind of beholden to a particular state, which does things that are is in their best interest, but not so much in the best interest of the rest of the world. Now, the rest of the world uses kind of the the, the best asset, the in, in this case, dollar. Now, it was the pound at one point, and it was another currency at another point. But the dollar is this global kind of reserve asset, but it is at the whim of whatever monetary policy the U.S. decides to do, and it can wreak havoc across the rest of the world and affect foreign direct investments and imports and exports and all this stuff. And, like, you know, it's not crazy to think that, like, in our lifetime, people are going to say, wow, like, look back and say, well, it sort of kind of made sense to have, like, a neutral reserve asset that has a very predictable monetary policy that is not controlled and governed by anyone and is just – it acts as a settlement layer for everything. Like, why wouldn't you? It's not to say that it's going to defeat fiat, but I do think that – and Arthur kind of pointed this in his in his article, which I think is fantastic. We should link it on the, on, on the episode um, notes – which is, you know, I have a view in, in, in how many countries are going to adopt Bitcoin, um, at least as a reserve asset in their balance sheet, uh, and that, that percentage growing pretty meaningfully. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think you look at that, and this is part of the reason why I jumped back on the Bitcoin wagon um, a few months ago. Our friends, quick break to share some exciting gaming updates from Avalanche, one of the leading L1s. Long story short, Gaming on Avalanche is taking off right now. Following the success of some popular games like Kerbada and Chicken, the ecosystem of games on Avalanche is really just exploding. A couple games I want to call out, you all know uh, and sometimes laugh at me, that I love DeFi Kingdoms. Well, it is about to deploy on Avalanche with the new world called Crystal Vale. Super excited about this one. Also, Rangarok, that is Rangarok. Rangarok is launching a brand new MMORPG game on the Avalanche Sea Chain soon. Also, a host of other popular games from major game developers coming soon to Avalanche. It really feels like with subnets on the horizon, Avalanche is perfectly poised to be at the forefront of GameFi. Super exciting development to keep an eye on. Now, let's get back to the show. Could this, le- I mean, well, we have Doe. I don't want to talk too much about Doe's strategy because we have Doe coming on the podcast next week, which I which I think is interesting. I mean, him and Adam back had this awesome interaction on Twitter, right? Where where Adam Adam's this like real, real, real cypherpunk OG cryptographer, one of the mm-hmm. bit, you know most OG Bitcoiners out there. Um, and he had this interaction where he's like, "Where's the ten billion coming from?" Doe kind of answered it. Adam said, "Where's the three billion coming from?" Doe said, "It's Bitcoin or Tether, right? One billion was raised recently, and then one point two billion LFG raised by selling UST against the Tether. So there's like, I think, point eight billion to go." And very interesting conversation to have there about like whether 
VCs and these institutional investors are almost kind of creating this private fractional reserve dollar, uh, like a pegged parallel currency that they hope tracks USD via some sort of marker uh, or like a USD, but where the, the, the reserves are, um, are in Bitcoin. I think there are some other interesting conversations to be had here. Like right now, the only thing that you can do with Bitcoin is you hold it. Right. You, right. you, you hodl your Bitcoin, you know, you don't do anything with it. It's mm-hmm. this like dead asset. But if other L1s start to integrate with Bitcoin, if Terra now integrates with Bitcoin, if Avalanche uh, gives you the ability, like supports Bit- uh, the Bitcoin network starting in Q2, does this mean that Bitcoin moves from this like dead asset uh, to something that can actually interact with DeFi for the first time? That becomes really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. what does this mean for all the projects that are building like DeFi on Bitcoin. If you've seen that, I feel like that's a trend that's kind of happening in the uh, in the background mm-hmm. right now is like Bitcoin-based yeah. DeFi. Does that mm-hmm. actually help that or does that hurt that? Because now Bitcoin can just be used in... It just, it just becomes really interesting if Bitcoin can now be used in Avalanche, Terra, Solana, et cetera, ecosystems mm-hmm. uh, and turn it into like an active, an active asset, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, okay, you can use gold as part of your collateral to buy a house, right? It counts as that. Same way, you could use Bitcoin in more functional ways. We should have the sovereign, um, I think it's Elon I spoke with yesterday. I'm quite excited what they're doing. I think they've done some interesting progress. Their roadmap looks pretty exciting. We should have them on the pod to to really give us a good level of understanding. Um, because one of the observations that I said is like it's, it's felt what I said earlier, which is it's felt underwhelming at the Bitcoin camp. And he said, you know what, there is there is still that subset of diehard Bitcoiners that are never going to change that, are, you know, just continue to believe that Bitcoin should not be anything else other than, you know, what it is and, and you shouldn't change it. And there's another camp like Muneev that I know you're close with, who's more on the progressive front, which says, we need to continuously make Bitcoin relevant and we need to add more functionality to it and and, and, and make a big push towards that. Um, you know, it's great that I think if there's any, I, I don't like, I want to make something very clear. I think if there's Bitcoin still king and I think, you know, it will, it will continue to probably be that it will continue to be, it's farthest along the spectrum of getting the most recognition, the most validation, it is by far the, the most secure kind of chain, at least now you could argue that, you know, it has some issues around like monetary, like, you know, security budget. Once all Bitcoins have been, you know, all 21 million Bitcoin have been, um, you know, emitted, but that's a topic for a separate conversation. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, it's still the more battle test. It's where most institutions are going to deploy initially. So you you ought to kind of make it more functional. And so I think it doesn't detract from, any, from the initial vision of Bitcoin. If anything, it enhances it. Um, so that's just my two cents. Right, right. And I think it's important to remember that all all money is a narrative, right? So let's look at let's look at three versions of of like money here. You've got the U.S. dollar, you've got Terra, and you've got Dai, or you've got UST. The plain old, the, the U.S. dollar is just a narrative that makes it money, right? So I mean, what's money more is a, the largest social network in the world. Yeah. So you've got the U.S. dollar, just a narrative backed by, you know, kind of the, the trust of the of the institutional government. Terra, backed by BTC. Uh, and then you've got DAI, backed by, I think it's backed like 50% by, what is DAI backed by? You'd know better than me. By the U.S. dollar or something, right? So DAI, DAI is uh, mostly a composition, but largely Ethereum, Right. Right. But maker deposit deposits and maker right maker yeah so now a lot of it's still some of it increasingly growing share of the pie is us excuse me what did I say I said us dollar I meant I meant yeah ETH, um, ETH so you got yeah, die yeah, yeah die back you're gonna by trigger ETH. a whole a whole set of oh my um, God. Of, of of maker uh, maxis out there sorry guys. yeah well yeah, I'm saying you've got die back by ETH you've got Terra back yeah. by BTC or you've got the US dollar back by the the faith of the government so you know I mean look end of the day I'm not gonna I'm not going to argue here anything, and I've always said it, which is everything at the end of the day is turtles all the way down. It is a social construct, and it's a fabrication of what we believe in. Gold, yeah. any any other kind of what we ascribe value to at the end of the day is a consensus. So I'm not going to argue that. In fact, I always tell people when they discover crypto, that's the beauty of your crypto journey. Because you're going to realize that everything is a social, and you're critical of why miners would expend energy to earn something called Bitcoin, which it pretends to be digital gold, and it's fabricated like scarce, 
provably scarce digital asset, then wait a minute. Let fine. I don't disagree with you. There's still a lot of implicit like there's an assumption and there's this consensus of miners that there's this kind of crazy people initially now increasing the growing share of the pie here that believes that this has value because it has digital properties and immutability and censorship resistance properties which haven't existed before and it's pretty awesome when you look at the math and then but it's still trust right it's still consensus okay fine now you go back and you say how is that any different from the US dollar bill, like, or any other fiat currency, you're trusting a government. It's like, no, 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 wait a minute, it's backed by gold. I'm like, no, it's certainly not <laughs> anymore. And even if it were backed by gold, then what is gold? And why does gold have value? Because it's not a great semiconductor. It's not a very practical store of value. Somehow over the centuries, humans have believed that gold has interesting properties. And Austrian economics would say, well, the amount of gold that gets mined every year as a percentage of the total supply is you know, keeps going down. But then there's crazy people that say, well, asteroid mining, we might find an asteroid out there that has like 100 times more of the gold reserves. Like what happens there? <laughs> this happened to rye blocks. Like, again, so anyways, like you go down the spiral, which we're not going to go. I'm just going to cut it there. I'm just going to stop. Turtles all the way down, Everything, baby. Turtles yeah, all turtle, the way down. Turtles all the way down. All right. Equity versus token value. Um, yes. Let's talk about this. I really want to get your take. So uh, Yuga Labs, I mean, just shout out to Yuga Labs. Freaking awesome what they're building. Uh, and I want to preface everything that I say now because I love Yuga Labs. I love what they're doing. I am just kind of, I'm, I want to question where's the model the for a second. Where's yeah, the where's butt? the butt? I want to question the model of what Yuga Labs is doing and what other folks in crypto are doing right now, which is double dipping. Uh, and what I mean by this, so Yuga announced on Tuesday that they raised $450 million at a $4 billion valuation by A16Z. Um, so there's basically you have the board apes. You've got the NFTs. Then you've got the ape coin, which has like a $13 billion fully, di fully diluted value. Uh, and mm -hmm. then you have the Yuga Labs equity. So, and like, um, I'll bring up another one because I don't want to pick on Yuga, like Ribbon, right? Ribbon has a $1.4 billion fully diluted value. Um, I think it's like a 70, yeah, $1.4 billion fully diluted value, but they just announced a $9 million series A plus led by Paradigm on Tuesday. So now you've got almost this like equity, you've got the equity in the company and then you've got the token equity, you've got the token value. So how, how is this not double dipping here? No, it is, right? <laughs> um, it is. And it's not the first time it's happened. It's actually fairly common. Um, where you have value being raised. Well, I'd say like, for instance, and clarify one thing before I go down making uh, a statement here, Yuga Labs as a entity holds a piece of the tokens. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Those tokens now value. So in their balance sheet, they have this war chest now that is denominated in both dollars that they've raised from in this round and also tokens, right? Now they've essentially fabricated two pieces of value. One, the paper, which is equity in Yuga Labs. The other one is ape token. I think there are valid concerns around what do you actually own when you have a piece of the ape token and what rights does that confer? Because it's very different owning Yuga Labs equity, what A16C bought and other folks have, have bought and the claims that that is, is you know, the claims that, that that instrument, meaning that, you know, equity has versus the ape token. Uh, let's just be very clear and upfront here, which is as an ape token holder, you one, don't have information rights, don't have any investor rights in Yuga Labs, can't knock on the door of the company, don't have anything. Now, of course, you say, well, the value is in the community. And you can fabricate all these kind of workaround answers, which says the value of the ape token is like these dual token models, like the value of the ape token accrues more value to Yuga Labs. And then Yuga Labs, because they have so many ape tokens in their balance sheet, have, a, the best, have an incentive to accrue value to the ape token. It's like this very harmonious kind of like relationship between the token and the equity, which I think is candidly a piece of bullshit. Um, it just introduces this complexity. And confusion and i never like seeing these dual kind of structures uh because at some point it just meddles with the incentives right right 
I mean, it feels like what's ha- okay. So ape token does not equal a- if you hold e- ape, uh, you uh, have equity. <laughs> Yugal, yeah, if you hold ape, you don't own Yuga and you don't own the IP in anything. Um, no. The v, yeah, unless like, unless somehow Yuga Labs board of directors decide to somehow dissolve, create a DAO while well, the DAO exists in the ape token and like transfer IP over to them. But right. as far as I know, that's not now, now here's the counter. Doesn't really matter, right? Seize the memes of production, baby. Uh and uh <laughs> I mean I guess. I mean, it doesn't matter just like, in a bull market, sir. It doesn't matter in a bull market. At billion dollars. It will yeah. matter when shit hits the fan and the token collapse and people are like, you know, it's different than you, if you get an airdrop free money. Like, oh, okay, great. Yeah. yeah, you know, yada, yada. No, everyone turns a blind eye. Very different that if you bought like $10 million of Ape token at this valuation, expecting to have some sort of claim on stuff. Very different. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people are really happy right now. And look, I I don't mean to come across as people have said that I'm always very positive and bullish, but I am also very critical. And I do want to make a point here, which is it's important to understand what you're buying. Because a lot of people are going to go out and say, I can't afford a board ape. I'm going to buy the ape token because, you know, I'm going to have this is this is like even better than the than an ape now you know you could argue like a whole set of discussions here this could drag out for hours but i you know it's just important to understand that right and caution people to probe and saying this is not buying yuga labs equity the ape token i'm not demeriting it i'm not saying it's less interesting or more interesting it's liquid the equity in yuga is not so look there's a whole kind of pros and cons here but as far as I can tell now, Jason, you push back here and tell me, but the Ape token is very much experimental. It's very much up to the community to figure out how to use it, what to do with it, um, which is very different than owning IP in and in, in a piece of a balance sheet um, of this company that has human capital and also, you know, other assets in, in the balance sheet and some kind of salvage value, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's the, here, here's the, here's my honest thought on on yuga labs and ape and stuff like that yuga labs is one of the three most exciting companies in all of crypto today i'm incredibly excited about what yuga labs is doing today ape the ape token doesn't really have any utility or much utility but do i think yuga labs understands that and is one of the smartest teams in all of crypto yeah absolutely so do i think that at some point they'll add utility yeah. And do I think it's a good investment? No freaking clue. No idea. And would never give any advice on that. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I think Yuga Labs is really exciting. And I think that mm-hmm. this ape coin is a, is a cool experiment. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, what percentage of companies that you invest in today, Santi, are structured as a DAO? Hmm. Well, a lot, I'd say, because... Um, well, I'd say 10 to 15% with a growing share of newer projects being DAO first. For instance, Barnbridge, Luvium, Lido, uh, and so many others started off as, as DAOs, Pleaser DAO. Um, it was just you fund a Gnosis safe and that's it. Yeah. And, you know, now you could argue like I, 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 I'm kind of working through this answer because, for instance, Ave is a DAO. Synthetics is a DAO, but Ave also has Ave Labs and has. So so I guess like I don't wouldn't necessarily count that as like DAO. I'm unless you mean by your question that you would count that as a DAO. I'm curious if you think that's a DAO. I think there are a lot of DeFi DAOs, but at the end of the day, there are entities that are deploying the code. Like for instance, Uniswap. Well, Uniswap is a token. I guess it is a DAO, right? Because it has some governance attached to that token. But there's Universal Navigation, which is the entity behind that, which is deploying the code for UniV2 and V, you know what I mean? Like, and so. Right. I I don't know. I think there is a trend um, to 
to go DAO first and just embed a token um, and and do everything on chain. Uh, but I don't think it's it's uh, it's maybe one it's yeah maybe ten twenty percent of new companies that I look up. Yeah, I, I've invested in a bunch of companies that are SAFs, right? So you've got mm-hmm. basically you've got a SAFT with a so you're investing in this in the like in a the, safe in the with token. token yeah, yeah, exactly in the token, but they don't have the token yet. So you do the pre-token launch, you invest in the SAFT. Um, but like investing in equity in the company after there's already a token launch seems no. like if I no, if one of these. No. Yeah. companies that I invested in, I invest in the SAFT and then they went out and raised like a year later equity in the company. I'm like, well, like, I guess the example here, the most recent example that I can think of is Sky Mavis, which is the game studio behind Axie. And they raised last summer from A16Z, I believe. Yeah. Um, and A16Z bought equity in Sky Mavis, which is the, the developer of this game and potentially future games. And so that's one, right? There was an Axie token in circulation. Sky Mavis was developing and uh, maintaining kind of the Axie um, game and Ronin and a bunch of other projects that they have in the fold. Um, there, if you, and I looked at it and the first question that I asked the team was, well, how much Axie, two questions, right? how much Axie do you have in your balance sheet? Like how, what percentage of the total tokens do you have in your balance sheet? Cause that, that's like the, right. I wanted it to kind of build up to the valuation. Right. And they held, you know, in the balance sheet to have a decent chunk of AXS and SLP and, and actual axes. Right. And so, okay, there's value there. There's something tangible, uh, of course, the team and everything and the, um, and, but the other, the second question was, well, what are you going to do with that? Like, what's your dividend distribution policy? Like, what are you going to do with those tokens? You sell those tokens. Are you going to give them back to me? And my foregone conclusion was, and may, I don't know if it's the right one or not, but I, I was like, well, why would I invest in the equity where I can just go buy AXS in the open market? Like, um, it just felt to me like a cleaner way to express a view of, of investing in, in Axie, for instance. But I, I'm sure... I'm missing a piece of, of that. And, yeah. You know, maybe, uh, for instance, the Sky Mavis team develops another game. They have another token. And so they might obviously, as a as an Axie holder, you might not get exposure to that. But then you're left wondering, well, why wouldn't they want to fold everything under the AXS umbrella? Like everything in their ecosystem uses the AXS token. And maybe it's a question of like game mechanics and gameplay and 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 you know, going to market and sometimes having a new token can be a, you know, a better model. The same with the DeFi protocols over their own DeFi native token, as opposed to just using ETH. I don't know. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, I think that I let's put a pin in this, but it feels clear to me that this is going to be a topic that the community is going to be split on. Um, well, not only that, you've gone a, a step further. I think it will come up in discussions. More and more. It's not yeah. being widely discussed now. But I think you are foreseeing something that in six months or a year, and especially we're in a bear market, this is this is going to be a hot point of contention. Yeah, exactly. Um, two last things to call out. One is the amount of venture funds that are raising right now is completely absurd. Um, and the other is uh, the figure. Uh, figure actually rolled out a... Mm-hmm. Blo- uh, uh, lending a mortgage, a mortgage product actually for crypto backed mortgages, which mm-hmm. I low key, I mean, it didn't get much like publicity, um, but I think it's actually a really it's interesting huge. product. Yeah. Like huge, when I, huge, huge. I, I got a mortgage, I got it through one of the traditional banks. They counted my crypto as zero, actually. They yeah, oh, looked yeah. at all my crypto and they said, this is let's worth- just, Let's just restate this is worth, that. They, this did is not, worth they did zero. not count your crypto. <laughs> they did not count my crypto. They- Right. It, was so, it was actually it. so hard to get a mortgage, a combination of oh, yeah. running. In fact, uh, they, they put you in like the high risk kind of bucket of like, okay, this guy's. In I mean, first off, they hate, they hate them. entrepreneurs. They like being an entrepreneur, running, running your own company. They basically, I'm like, no, obviously like we have a running company, right? We do eight figures in revenue and you know we've got 50 employees and they're like, nope, you are a high risk person. And yeah. they're like, show me your assets. I'm like, okay, here it is. And they're like, well, it's all in crypto. We don't count this as anything. I'm like, oh my God. So uh, mm-hmm. shout out to figure, uh, figure started by yeah, this guy, Mike time. Cagney, who started SoFi. SoFi um, yeah. 
And in the past, if you owned crypto and you wanted to get a mortgage, you couldn't use your crypto unless you went through mm-hmm. someone like, um, I don't know, did took out a big loan on like Blockfi or something or Aave. Yeah, Blockfi or Aave, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so now users can use their Bitcoin or ETH as collateral to take yeah, out a mortgage yeah. up to twenty million, right? With APRs wow. of like, I mean, the APR is high; it's six percent, but uh, it's not terrible. It's not terrible, right? Is it fixed? Uh, that's a good question. Like thirty year know. fix six. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, we should, I we think should so. Look. That's not. I mean, that's not. It's pretty not, ho- not horrible. So it's better than. Well, I guess they're counting it, but importantly, it's under collateralized. What? Right? Like they're counting it, but you don't have to deposit. Put it in escrow. Do you? Mm. Maybe you do. I don't know. Actually. actually, maybe you do. That would be interesting because so a lot a lot of folks in the industry have deposited their crypto into some like Ave or Compound or Maker, taking that money out send it back to a centralized exchange, convert it to dollars, pay for the house. But you can only get, you know, as you know, you have to keep a certain collateral ratio, which is fairly inefficient. Whereas yes. traditional mortgages under are under collateralized, they look at your earnings and you look at your other aggregate assets to then determine certain terms of the loan, but it's under collateralized, right? If you default on the loan, you don't seize on your equity of block you know, BlockFi, they just kind of take possession of the house. Whereas in Aave, in the case of crypto native, like through BlockFi or whatever, they'll they'll literally liquidate you and get possession. It's a it's like a collateralized loan. You know what? I'm uh, actually looking at the website right now. Is this under collateralized? Because I'm not sure. Actually, that, you that, put that up five million in Bitcoin or Ether, we give you a five no, million dollar. No, no, no there you go. It's it's it's, it's collateralized. Yeah. Oh, well, then that's not that cool. That's not that. No, it's it's still good, though, because I'm, I'm sure they can look at in the aggregate, right? Um, you know, they might count other stuff in there. No, that's true. That's true. Shout so out to uh, shout out to Pomp and Mark Yusko and uh, 10T, friends over at uh, 10T, Dan Tapiero. They were, I think, in the first round. I'm pretty sure Pomp sits on the board of figure. Uh, they were in the first round of um, figure. Is, is an investor, too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. The last thing to get your take on is just the number of uh, funds that we're seeing raise money right now is completely absurd. I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. Uh, when does this end or is this just the new norm that I feel like everyone and their mother's raising a 10 to $100 million fund? Yeah, like $100 million funds, what a, what a seed fund, scout fund was a couple of years ago, right? It's like a $10 million fund. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what to think of it. I mean, obviously good for them. Um, is this bad? Is this bad for the industry? Having just, I mean, I spoke with someone the other day, raised, raised a mini, raised a fund and it was like a decent chunk of change. And they're not even in crypto and they basically just have a big following on Twitter. And they're like, yeah, I launched a, a crypto fund. Um, I have no idea what any of this stuff means that I'm investing in, but yeah, here we are. So it historically is, is tracked. It historically is. Tra- well, okay. First of all, you're creating a new asset class, right? And so I think if you look at, I was looking at this back in the day, like when, in 1979, I think it was 1970s, where the 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 ERISA E R I S A laws allowed pension funds to invest in in venture, and you look at the capital formation of venture funds, it just like spiked and it's been sustained in a dramatic form right after that. And I felt that this this would have happened in crypto earlier, where as soon as Cambridge Associates came out with that report in 2017, I think, or 18, that you know managers should consider crypto as an asset class. To me, of course, it's not a new piece of legislation in the same way that ERISA laws change for pension funds to invest. But in many ways, it was a big nudge for these managers to consider crypto. And I think increasingly now, any manager is now faced at least with a has to evaluate crypto just from a fiduciary responsibility. I think has to is probably, I don't I want to say it's a breach of fiduciary responsibility if you don't at least evaluate crypto, but I think everyone now is looking at it. Um, And so I think like from that perspective, still very few pension funds have invested in the asset class. Um, So as soon as that continues to open up with more regulatory clarity, I think it will totally eclipse what you're seeing now. But of course, it is pretty impressive, especially Katie's fund. I think it's Han Ventures or Han Capital. Or 1.5 billion. Yeah, massive. 1.5 billion. I think it's the 
broke a record for solo uh, GP, the biggest raise, and probably the biggest raise for a female partner as well. Good for Katie. She's done good work at A16C. Big amount of change. I don't know uh, where she's going to deploy that other <laughs> than track beta. Um, but I think it was broken up into two vehicles, one for early stage stuff and another for, you know, more yeah. liquid kind of, but you can look you at the, outper- can you outperform beta? Can you outperform the sector when you are raising a fund, when you have 1.5 billion to deploy? Well, not meaningfully, I think, I think the, the when, when does that probably, flip? is it like a $10 million fund? You can obviously outperform a $50 million. I was getting fund, asked this question can... because a lot of people are like, are you going to start a fund? Are you going to start it? And I was like, why would I? Like, I think the sweet spot for crypto funds is like a sub 200 million. Yeah. Especially sub hundred. That's where you have the most. Asymmetry I mean, when you go you're big, then you're, then you're also competing with like paradigm and a 16 Z and yeah. Parify. Yeah. And, but when you're small, you know, then I'm sure everyone's inviting you on the cap table right now. Though I don't know what check size you usually invest, but I'm sure everyone's. <laughs> which I you're consider an inst- myself you're, an, an you're institutional, institutional angel. angel. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like uh, you're right. Like, look, you know, like managing, everyone's probably inviting man- you on the cap table. But if you raised a huge fund, then now you're competing with all your friends yeah, who invite you yeah, on the yeah. cap table. Which is fine. Like I think yeah. the, the the biggest. Uh, this is I'm a biased perspective because I love early stage stuff, and I think that's where the most exciting, highest asymmetry bets in the industry. Um, happen or even early stage liquid like tokens yeah. that are recently launched um it is harder of course to deploy 500 to a billion and meaningfully outperform eth especially if you start layering in these kind of amorphous is difficult to quantify but still sharp ratio is 13 ratio which is what you could do is say you buy a billion dollars of ETH. You can go out there and do that. You can buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin and ETH and Solana, like top 10 market cap. You could, you could deploy, right? Not move the market as much. And then with that, swap some into early stage stuff that can have a lot of asymmetry. It takes one or two to really break out. But at the end of the day, is it going to really move the needle for that incremental level of risk and illiquidity? Unclear, right? But these are things that you you can outperform, and I think a lot of a lot of folks are saying, "Look, I'm just going to pay a manager to like." There's a reason why Grayscale had a premium, right? Because right, people don't want right. to touch crypto, don't want to touch tokens, don't want to deal with custody. They much rather outsource all of the resourcing, execution, security, everything to a manager full time, and then say, "Look, if I get Bitcoin or ETH, great. It's just plus option value to do a little bit better." Yep, and they're willing to do, to accept that. Yeah. All right. Last thing. Uh, ETH is up 12% on the week, 11% on the week. We crossed 3000. Uh, as Mike put it to me earlier today, maybe the merge is the new happening. Uh, mm-hmm. What is your, our episode in early February, you said that you were back in Bitcoin. What does your portfolio look like right now? Uh, late March, we've got the merge coming up. What does your portfolio look like uh, as, as we've got this kind of impending merge? I'm very constructive on ETH. I didn't think EIP fifteen fifty nine was priced in. I didn't think the mer- the 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 halvings are priced in, even though they're widely known, uh, like programmed. And I think the happening, I mean, the merge is. Uh, I don't think a lot of market participants appreciate one that it's closer. And to the the impact that it will have, and this was a prediction that I had earlier on, uh, you know, a, a prediction for the year. I said the merge is going to happen in Q two, sometime in the summer, and I think we're closer to that. I think that to to act, act like that happening, and you know, it, it lends a lot of credibility back to Ethereum as a fully transition to proof of stake. So I think uh, you know it's not going to solve gas prices. That's L twos, which are also you know an area that is growing and exciting um but i think yeah as always you know eth goes out of favor and it has been yeah. to some extent now I'm, I'm very my portfolio is mostly liquid canada it always is mostly liquid like i, I just love venture I, I love really stage stuff i love connecting with founders that's why i come to conferences and i'm super active on that front um extremely active probably more busy than i have ever been um because i'm seeing 
one, the number of verticals and the things that you can invest in. It's not just infrastructure, you know, yeah. layers of the stack and then the different kind of verticals. Consumer, like NFT is much different than DeFi, but you can invest in that in gaming. And so that's very exciting. And the caliber of people, I was just telling you off offhand, you know this, but like I've just, you know, seeing like very successful Web2 founders in the gaming space come in and build from the most recognizable names in the industry. Like to me, I see that and I get very fired up. And so for that reason, as Bill Ty said this in an episode, which is where I feel most comfortable is not where you as an investor, whoever's listening, um, should construct their portfolio. I always have felt more comfortable investing in in early stage stuff. I feel like that's my edge, connecting with founders and investing in things that really passionate teams that are going to build kind of a lot of the problems that we think we're, we're seeing in crypto. There's 10 teams trying to solve that problem. Right? We'll go try yeah. and find that. And so that's where I felt, you know, I don't, I don't mind the liquidity because I think that has the highest asymmetry. And if it doesn't work out, you know, it doesn't take, every, not all of them are going to work out, but I'm fine with that. You know, yeah. it takes one or two, you know, to, to really break out. What's going on tonight? Avalanche conference? Yeah, a bunch what of events. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's a few a few events out there. Uh, there's like 10 or so. And so I don't know if I'll go to a few <laughs> or none. <laughs> but I'm here to catch up with a few folks that I haven't seen in a while. You know, Stani's out here and a bunch of other folks are here. So I'm going to try to make it out to, to one or two. Uh, just say hi to folks. Have people taken over the like shokus and opiums of the world? <laughs> you know your way around Barcelona, sir. I will say that. Why, why you're not here? <laughs> I spent a month in Barcelona. Actually, I love Barcelona. I uh, spent there too much go. time at those like beach beach bars and beach clubs. <laughs> I remember as a high, in high school graduation, I came here in a shoestring budget. I went to Opium, uh, which is a bar or a nightclub, and Pasha and a bunch of others. But yeah. Barcelona is, is live. It's like San Francisco. You know, it's like hilly. It has different weathers. Yeah. It's it's kind of like San Francisco. Hipster, yeah, it's just good vibes. Yeah, I remember Razzmatazz. I don't know if that place is still around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. Keep that spirit for permissionless, you know? And I will do this, everyone. everyone. Oh, you know who we just locked in fantastic. for permissionless, Santi, is uh, is Blau. We've got a huge party the last night of, uh, of permissionless, and Blau is going to play this awesome 90-minute set. So super excited about well, that. Well, listen, everyone, if, you, if you, at this point you're having concerns about and doubts about coming to permissionless, Let's just put it this way. I haven't been in the U.S. since I, oh, it's over a year and a half. I'm coming back for permissionless. That's all you need to but say. That's all I need to say. God all bless. Right. God bless. All right, Santi. <laughs> cool, man. Well, uh, have a great day. Have a great night Thank at uh, Avalanche. And uh, yeah, everyone, thanks for listening. Hit that button. Hit the subscribe. Leave us a review. And uh, we'll see you next week. All right, gents. Take care. Thanks for listening. <laughs> see ya.